You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at AllIndianaPodcastNetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. I thought I'd have to choose between an IT degree and certifications until I found WGU. There I earned both through one program. WGU prepared me to earn certs from CompTIA and others at no extra cost. WGU IT bachelor's and master's degrees have no set class times. Rather, students progress at their pace, completing as many courses as they can each six-month term. I graduated faster, and you could too. Learn more at WGU.edu. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Sarah Gristwood. She is an English journalist and author, a wonderful historian. She was born in Kent. She grew up near Dover, which has the best castle in England, just a just a rock throw away. She was educated at St. Anne's College in Oxford. As a journalist, she has written for a number of British papers, including The Times, The Guardian, and The Telegraph. She has written historical biographies as well as fiction and has contributed to television documentaries on Lots of historic events, including quite a few that have happened recently. Ms. Gristwood also has interviewed celebrities such as Clint Eastwood, Robert De Niro, Martin Scorsese, and this bass player named Paul McCartney. Her books include Game of Queens, The Women Who Made 16th Century Europe, Blood Sisters, the Women Behind the Wars of the Roses, and I'm going to ask her about the Wars of the Roses because it's so ridiculously complicated, <laughs> Churchill, An Extraordinary Life, The Ring and the Crown, a book about royal weddings with co-author and a wonderful podcast guest, Dr. Tracy Borman. Sarah wrote a 50th anniversary book companion to the movie Breakfast at Tiffany's, which I've never seen. 
And her latest book is titled The Tudors in Love, The Courtly Code Behind the Last Medieval Dynasty. And we will put a link to Miss Gristwood's website when we post this podcast interview. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, I got accused of only inviting British women on the podcast <laughs> because of the accents. So I just want you to know that is not true. It's just an added bonus. Let's start. You've written so many books that have touched on uh, the British royal family. Uh, mm. Let's talk a little bit about that, please. It's been a momentous year, mm. to say the least. 2022 so, was. Uh, yeah. As much as the British royal family gets headlines here in the United States, mm. uh, is the coverage a bit overwhelming in Great Britain? Yes, I think today is a very good example because, yeah, you know, we've, we've all sorts of things going on in uh, in the wide world and, you know, in our own economy and stuff. But most of the papers, a lot of them were headlining on the trailer for uh, the interviews for Prince Harry's new book, which comes out in in just a week's time. So it was all about Harry says he wants his family back and that kind of thing. Yes, the coverage can get a bit overwhelming here, but when the Queen died, when Queen Elizabeth died just a few months ago, it was a surprise to me to realise just how global the interest was. So maybe, you know, the 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 obsession with it here is no surprise. When Prince Harry said he would like his family back, mm. what is what is the general and I'm of course I am not asking you to take sides, but what is what would you how would you characterize the general attitude about that subject in Britain? Would mm. they say, well look, he's the one who pushed his family away, so now he's asking to have him back? Or is it more along the lines of you know, it's about time someone spoke up more forcefully about the backroom machinations of the royal family. Well, probably the first, and I'm glad you said the words so I don't have to. <laughs> the trouble is that here we are almost forced to take sides. It 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 almost doesn't seem possible to say that, you know, yes, I'm I'm sure. I think it's it's unreal, you know unrealistic and naive to say that there wasn't racism in the, the press mm -hmm. coverage of Meghan Markle as then she was, but you don't have necessarily then to feel that the Sussexes are saints and the, the rest of the royal family are villains or vice versa. Um, I think that a, a number of the papers here have committed themselves the tabloids, the more down market papers, many of which, of course, are in dispute with the Duke and Duchess of, Su of, of, of Sussex. You know, they are, of course, suing uh, several right. newspapers. That's right. So that, of course, you know, doesn't make the press warm towards them. So a number of the papers have gone all out and, yes, would say exactly what you suggested. Um, that you know it, it's that, that it's illogical for prince harry to say he wants to reconcile with his family while launching public attacks on them 
and so forth. The, the more upmarket papers, the broadsheets tend to have a more balanced view that, you know, that it's not a question of, you know, a total wrong, a total right. It's more about shades of grey. And it seems to to me that any reading, I mean, depending on how far you want to go back, but I'm going to guess it goes back as far as it can go, that royal families, not just dynasties, but individual families mm-hmm. have had their issues. Well, and that- this is no different. And instead of instead of swords and and longbows, you have Twitter and Facebook. Well, absolutely. Indeed, the disputes now, I mean, a lot of, of the royal British, royal English royal family disputes in the past makes this look like nothing, makes this look like <laughs> a love fest. I mean, someone I think I saw on, on Twitter was saying that, you know, once upon a time, what is it about these two, these two just playing public relations, William and Harry, with each other. Once upon a time, they'd have been getting an army and going at it at Bosworth or <laughs> Towton or one of the other historic battlefields. Is there, is there, is there a, uh, a, a, a case of Malmsey wine laying <laughs> around somewhere in Buckingham Palace in case Harry comes back. Well, quite. Don't even. Yes, in the tower, maybe. Um, But no. But no. Seriously, (laughs) you're absolutely right. If you look at well, we mentioned the Wars of the Roses, didn't we? But if you look at the kind of disputes on which the medieval royal family embarked, or even later on relations within the Hanoverian, the Georges, the 18th century royals, Mm. this is nothing. And it seems that the one critical difference, though, and correct me, is that whether it's Henry the Second and Henry the Young King, or um, mm-hmm. George the First not getting along with his son, and Second not getting along with his son in the Hanoverian time period, but this is a case of Harry walking away, not trying to seize power. In other yeah. words, he's trying to give it up for yeah, what he thinks fine. is clearly, yeah. you know, the health and welfare of his wife. How is that being seen? Um, I think that was there, there was a huge amount of uh, respect and sympathy for what he was doing at first. I think there is now, rightly or wrongly, uh, a slight sense that 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 the Sussexes can't have it both ways, that, you know, perhaps it is now that if they want not to be working members of the royal for absolutely fine. Um, But is it then realistic to keep on doing documentaries about the subject? That's uh, Piers Morgan's. uh, He has strong opinions on that, a British journalist. Uh, That's his. That's has been his point long away. Before we move on, is there, you know, you, you watch, if you've been to, to England, been to Britain, as I have, and you see the magnificence of all the buildings and, you know, the jewels and the events and the history that that really revolve around the royal family down the centuries, is there a general British attitude of, look, you may not like the spotlight and you may feel like you wish you could do something else, but damn it. You were born into the royal family. You have all this money, all these privileges, all this fame, these beautiful houses. 
suck it up. Because that's what we don't have in the United States. We don't have, I mean, we have famous families, mm-hmm. but we don't have someone who's born into a family and then they're automatically to do this. Mm-hmm. I read no, the indeed. terrific book on um, the abdication of Edward the Eighth. And it was like, he just didn't ever seem like he ever wanted to be king, ever be involved mm. in the quote unquote, the firm. So it was the mm. British attitude like, look, you hit the lottery, guys. Suck it up. Yes and no. I think there is an element of, uh, you know, acknowledge the privileges that have come with 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 the, the role as well as the penalties. But then again, I think people, most of us are aware he didn't ask to be born into the royal family. It did into this particular position and this set of expectations. He did very visibly suffer for it at a very early age when the world watched him as, you know, a young child walking behind his mother's coffin. So in a, I think there is, a, there is a certain feeling that, you know, no, he clearly did have a very damaging childhood, largely in the sense of his mother's death and everything around that. Uh, it's just really a question of how things are going to move on from here. Is the Prince of Wales' secret weapon the Princess of Wales? Kate? Yeah, I think mm, I think the entire royal family's see, now not so secret weapon is Kate, the Princess of Wales. I think she really has emerged over the last uh, f- few years as um, as an absolute force for the remaining royal family, because of course there's no one else around really who can provide that magic glamour factor. Um, the Queen, you know, it was obviously that was glamour mm. of a very different kind, you know, the glamour of an, you know, a very, very grand and wonderful older lady. Our Princess Anne is, you know, it's not quite the kind of thing she does. It's mm. really now that Meghan, that the Duchess of Sussex has departed, it's all about Kate. And it seems to be the role fulfilled by her uh, putative mother-in-law, Princess Diana. I was yeah. one of the Americans who got up at three in the morning or whatever time it was here in Indiana to watch the royal wedding back as it 82, 81, yeah. 40 some years ago. Yeah. And she was, you know, Diana, like Kate, is so ridiculously beautiful. You can't help but just be drawn in. But there also yeah. seems to be a separate, a separate element that they bring that other folks don't have. Yes, though I think, of course, comparisons are far more frequently made, not least by Prince Harry, between Diana and Meghan than Diana and Kate, because I think probably Diana and Kate were very different personalities and entering the royal family from a very different place, if you like. Mm -hmm. Um, Kate was a decade older than Diana. She had a lot more experience. And while I'm sure it's not been easy, she knew what she was getting into. Whereas perhaps Diana didn't, didn't, and perhaps neither did Megan to some degree. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is author, historian, and journalist, Sarah Gristwood. So I, I outed myself. I want to make sure we talk about this because I just found it fascinating. I outed myself as someone who's never seen 
Breakfast at Tiffany's in its entirety. <laughs> How did you get the gig to write the 50th <laughs> anniversary book companion to the Truman Capote classic? Mm. I was invited to, uh, I guess, in a sense, the two the two handles, if you like, of um, historian, since this is now, you know, a, a historical artifact, uh, and a former film journalist came together there. And of course, it's such a legend of a film for so many women, particularly, I think, that I was delighted to do it. When was the last time you hummed Moon River? <laughs> I don't hum Moon, Moon River because I can never get the tone that Audrey had. But <laughs> hummed in my head, maybe that's another matter. This is a question I always try to ask my guests, especially historians. Uh, do mm. you have a particularly favorite movie about history? British or otherwise? Uh, yeah, I actually think I do. And it's a slightly irreverent one, Knight's Tale with Heath Ledger. Because, of course, that is irreverent, giving a modern spin in the right way. But I think, therefore, it, you know, it's just so clever in the way it plays on some real truths and assumptions, you know, about um, the Middle Ages, the world of the joust, while doing it to a, you know, Queen soundtrack. I think <laughs> it usefully reminds us that people in the past didn't know they were history. You know, they didn't think of themselves as some quaint figures any more than we do. And I quite like that. I think often, weirdly, it often is the comic things, you know, Miranda Richardson as Queenie in, in Blackadder, that actually give you a kind of little shot of, of insight, if you like, into the reality of these people. When I was starting my uh, master's program and ended up being 14th century, 15th century English history, my thesis advisor asked me, well, describe your knowledge of medieval history so I know where we're starting. Mm -hmm. And my mm -hmm. response was, I've seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> and well, I, and, and, I didn't have anything to add after that. So my and what, what did your supervisor say? He shook his head and said, I hope you like to read. <laughs> I said, I do. <laughs> Is it tough for you? I remember asking Susanna Lipscomb, I think mm -hmm. uh, Nicola Tallis and Tracy Borman, this question. Is it tough for you to, to watch historical movies and not be a historian? In other words, if you were a, a historian of the, of the late mm -hmm. 13th century and you're watching Braveheart and you just shake your head Ooh. and go, none of this is even close. Yeah. Is it difficult? Um, I actually find it less so watching historical movies. It's reading historical novels that I often have trouble with. I think if if a movie is good, it kind of it carries its own apparent, rightly or wrongly, authenticity enough to carry you along. And I tend 
I've um, I've often had arguments with Alison Weir about this. Um, I tend, perhaps, with my film my film background, my, that hat on, to be more forgiving of some sort of anomalies. But then we all have our we all have our stopping point, don't we? <laughs> if you go back, you know, to something like the Tudors, I didn't mind things that um, really worried, you know. A few others, like the fact that oh, the bonnets were wrong. You know, the costumes were ten years out. I could even perish the thought; I wouldn't even have noticed. I could even, sorry, forgive the fact that it took two of Henry VIII's Henry VIII's two sisters, rolled them into one princess, and married her to the wrong king. But the bit where it got me, yeah, okay. I, I'm I, I, I'm tolerant. Right? The bit where it where I said no enough was where in the Tudors Thomas Cromwell took a lot of you know high powered statesmen down into the cellars of Hampton Court or Whitehall or wherever and showed them this amazing new gadget that was going to spread the word about the dissolution of the monasteries and, you know, Anne Boleyn, and, and it was the printing press. Well, sorry, the printing <laughs> press reached England half a century before this scene was set. And uh, although, you see, I feel the great argument for, 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 for historical fiction on screen and in print Things like the Tudors, indeed, my you know the right the creator of the Tudors made this argument to me when I interviewed him, is that it gets people, especially perhaps kids, young people, involved in history who wouldn't otherwise have been interested, and I feel yes, that's fine. It doesn't. It's it's fine if they don't actually know whether the bonnets are quite right or not. It's actually still worth it. If they don't know how many sisters Henry VIII had, a lot of us don't. But if if they actually think that all, you know, the dawn of, of, of the Renaissance in England had happened before the printing press, you know, with that, that lack of information disseminated, I wonder if that's really useful. Because there Sorry, are so many things. Really yeah. Not at all. You know, I have friends who would say, hey, you know, I'm watching Braveheart. Mm. You want to watch it with me? And I laugh and go, I'll ruin it for you. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, uh, you see yeah. the Prince of Wales' wife? Yeah. Well, when they actually got married, I th what was she, three? When they were mm -hmm. betrothed? And and go ahead. May I just say, I was on the set of Braveheart in my film journalist days. So, yes. I How was that? <laughs> oh, uh muddy um it was <laughs> no did seriously. you look around for the bridge at sterling bridge like there's no bridge here where's the bridge <laughs> no we were in ireland it was a night shoot ireland um it was a castle standing in for some northern castle and there were the real stone you know the ruined walls and there was the fiberglass, and it was only by going along knocking on it that you could tell which was which. But no, I, what the, the historical lesson I took away from that is we today have no concept of the mud factor of the Middle Ages. I mean, 
the grounds outside this castle, Mel Gibson had got a huge number of extras from the Irish Territorial Army. Mm-hmm. So they'd all been tramping through for days. And I tell you, it was knee deep. There's a lot of recent uh, British history movies and television that have sparked popularity, whether it's Downton mm-hmm. Abbey or Darkest Hour or The King's mm-hmm. Speech or or The Crown. Are there any of those that have come in recently that you, you fancy more than others or, or say, hey, they get it right? Mm, interesting, because I almost feel impelled to answer on the crown, which sometimes gets it right and sometimes perhaps not. I mean, I think things like Downton Abbey are, are just fun and fun and delightful, aren't they? And we've all visited the stately homes, you know, so. Um, the crown is really the interesting case in point there, because some see because because of the liberties it takes but combined with an almost forensic level of accuracy in detail so i find it is a little bit like you know like alice in wonderland alice down the rabbit's <laughs> hole you're kind of watching thinking yes goodness yes that 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 meeting happened that costumes exactly right the queen was wearing Exactly that when she met Yeltsin, except presumably her sapphires were real and, you know, the television ones weren't. Uh, But then suddenly you find that this very convincing emotional drama that looks exactly right has somehow led you to a place where you never expected to be and which, as a historian of the royal family, I don't necessarily believe in, you know, that particular episode Mm. all about the Russian background of the royal family, uh, cast the Queen and Prince Philip as odds, as in, you know, he desperate to explore his royal roots and she, his, his Russian roots, and she effectively being blamed, you know, for the murder of the Romanovs. And I I find that hard to believe, you know. that, that, that. But, of course, what they rely on is the fact that none of us know those conversations didn't happen. We may think they're profoundly unlikely, but we can't. There's only two people who could have said for sure, and they are both now dead. A few months ago, I read, and I don't know if you know her because we've talked about some other authors whom you know. Jane Ridley wrote. A, I've met her. Yes, indeed, a wonderful historian. She wrote a terrific book on George V, which I read, mm. and she devoted several pages to the fate of the Romanovs and mm. and how the House of Windsor and the British government. Uh, interacted with mm-hmm. them and mm-hmm. unless i am uh, forgetting what she wrote i'm pretty confident her ultimate conclusion was they just weren't savable right would you agree well, with that uh yeah it's, uh, as historians always say it's not my period of course i'm no expert mm-hmm. on the romanovs but uh Yes, I think that probably is true. I know there has been talk, indeed, of how the 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 British King George, you know, George V, didn't move to get rapidly enough to give them sanctuary in this country, and that perhaps he was concerned about his his own position at mm. the time when so many monarchies were falling and when his was under attack for its german connections but i think again as we always tend you know to to fall back on 
the situation was complicated. And I do find it very hard to believe that the dynamics were quite those suggested uh, in the Crown. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran business enterprise. Sponsored by... Chris, please edit out that saved sneeze. Thank you. I'll start again. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is author, historian, biographer, interviewer, Sarah Gristwood. She's given us some of her time, and we're very grateful. Is there a, a particular American leader or legend you admire most? Oh, goodness. Now, you see, I'm scared to answer here because I always, because my knowledge of American history is probably not good enough to answer well. But let's just say I'm working on a book about women's diaries and I'm edit, I've been asked, I'm editing an anthology of Mary Chestnut. She indeed is one of the ones I edit, I'm I'm using, but I was thinking more of people like Ida B. Wells. You know, there are yeah. some of the amazing, um, amazing voices. And voices coming from 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 areas, in her case, of course, you know, as a woman of colour, whose voice we haven't traditionally heard enough. There was a long time when we weren't hearing women's voices sufficiently, other than very, you know, Queen Elizabeth, Queen Victoria. Um, then we began hearing a lot more voices from women, but all the same, it tended to be white, middle class or upper class women. And I'm glad that that's becoming diversified. And as so often, you know, American publication seems to be leading the way. You have led me into my next question, which I'm just going to read verbatim so you don't <laughs> think that I am being mendacious here. Speaking of new histories, in your new book, there is a terrific cadre of female historians of not only the Tudor Stewart period, but others as well. Susanna Lipscomb, Tracy Borman, Helen Carr, Nicola Tallis, Yana Ramirez, and of course yourself. What perspectives do you all bring that may have been missed in the past? Mm. Well, I think it is very often. Uh, I think perhaps two things, Dif varying slightly differently, you know, for different historians. Someone like Helen Carr, perhaps, you know, writes about a broader spectrum of women, not just the, the royal ones. Uh, I think it's... It's partly just trying to restore more and more female voices, but also uh, I think that 
probably the female historians have brought a different perspective on uh, famous figures like, well, Lady Jane Grey, who was the subject of one of Nicola's books, is a good example. It's terrific. It's a great book. Yeah. It absolutely is. But, and again, uh, Margaret Beaufort, of whom Nicola has written, as have I, in Blood Sisters. I think because the, the work, the, the input of women, even royal women, was very often private, behind the scenes pillow talk, if you like, uh, it hasn't been recorded. And so I think what female historians have, have done, um, particularly perhaps at a time when more and more sources are opening up, you know, when we're beginning to find more archives are available to more of us with the globalization, you know, of the internet, um, it is just to try and restore some of those, those silent voices. Because for example, your own period, you know, for example, you mentioned the Wars of the Roses. Edward the Fourth. Now, Elizabeth Woodville, any, any, or or indeed her daughter Elizabeth of York with Henry the Seventh. We can, we do not know what, if any, input they really had onto policy making, because that input would not have been in Parliament, in the Inns of Courts, recorded in most of the sources of the day. But that doesn't mean it didn't happen. And does as someone I I just watched the movie Beckett with Richard mm-hmm. Burton and Peter O'Toole. It, mm-hmm. She doesn't play quite as big a role as she does in the movie The Lion in Winter. But mm-hmm. was there just so much attention paid to Eleanor of Aquitaine mm-hmm. that people felt like, okay, we've checked that box. We don't really need to go on and worry about anybody yes, else. I- I think perhaps, well, I think that's it. The box did get, as as it were, checked with, yes, Eleanor of Aquitaine, Elizabeth I, you know, a few characters. But, of course, you know, women, these were just a few very exceptional individuals to represent half the human race. So that there was work. (laughs) And 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 uh, Justinian's and very wife. Yeah, oh, yes. <laughs> and very exceptional, exceptional individuals who who were also in an exceptional position. Joan of Arc would be another. Right. Yeah. Exactly. She would indeed. Are there any specific goals in your research? Is it to debunk myths or elevate certain actors? Uh-huh put certain people in their place, solve mysteries. When you go into a topic, oh, do, you, do you have preconceived goals? Uh, I guess for me, it, it, it it's almost about how things fit together. Um, obviously, before I began to write the Tudors, before, you know, conceived the Tudors in love, I knew a fair bit about the Tudors, we all know a certain amount about their love stories, Henry and his eight, you know, six wives and so on. Um, I was also fascinated by this centuries old, even in the Tudor day, idea of courtly love. Mm. But it was quite how you could see it surviving and influencing a lot of the Tudor attitudes and decisions. 
importance that interested me. I think it is, it's that kind of pathway through the centuries or through a particular period of time, like the Wars of the Roses, that fascinates me. The Wars of the Roses are, let me say that again, the Wars of the Roses is one of the most difficult time periods mm, in which yes. to try to immerse yourself. It's Oops. it's complicated, it's perfidious, and as a Lancastrian, in my view, the wrong, the bad side wins. But what draws <laughs> what draws you to it? Well, that one, I think that book actually started as I wanted to look at events before and after and everything that came together on the battlefield at Bosworth. But part of that was the women like Margaret Beaufort, you know, who had been pro providing supplies, sending messages, etc., you know, to in sending intel to her son, Henry, um, Henry Tudor. And finally, I think someone said to me, it's clearly the women who interest you. Why don't you write about that? But I agree with you totally that it is a very difficult period, more so, oddly enough, than a lot of, of what actually went before. The sources are extremely patchy. And because, it, you know, it, it's a cliche that history is told by the victors. So it's almost whatever was being put out was propaganda for one side or the other. And the surviving sources... And that is part, part of that is just plain as, you know, basic as a fire in the records office in the 18th century, no. um, are particularly bad on the women. So we know that there were these women in extraordinary positions, torn, like Cecily Neville, you know, the mother of the Yorkist kings. She had to deal with the fact that her son, one of her sons, Edward IV, ordered the execution of another of you know the duke of clarence, duke of clarence. in the in, in the momsey wine the aforementioned in the <laughs> wine yes and that a third of her sons richard the third was at least sus was suspected rightly or wrongly of killing two of her grandsons and yet we have no real idea what she felt about it I mean, it's a safe bet she wasn't ecstatic, but do we know what side she was on? No, not really. So at the risk of, of, of angering, what I hear is a significant, significantly powerful oh. force, and that is the Richard III Society. Oh, tell me we're not going to talk princes in the tower. Who killed them? <laughs> this is your chance. Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> Never mind the wars of the Waleses and the Sussexes. This is much worse. Um, I tend to, I get cast in, in arguments with Alison Weir, I get cast as a Ricardian. I'm not really a Ricardian. I'm merely a believer in innocent until proven guilty. Are okay? you looking forward to the rumoured? Autopsy or DNA tests that mm. on the skeletons that were found in the tower that Queen Elizabeth II refused to allow, but King Charles III apparently is more amenable. 
Yes, it'll be interesting, certainly, but it ain't going to tell us who killed them. All it can do is tell us whether there really is a strong possibility that they are, or that they even that they are, were the princes. But that's not going to that's not going to affirm who it was there. So, indulge the leaders and legends podcast audience. Take a minute and make your best case that Richard III is innocent of this crime. You really are determined to get me into trouble, aren't you? All right, <laughs> you win. I'd, I'd, okay, I'd say 60-40 he did it, okay? Maybe even 70-30. But my best case is that he did not necessarily, he was only one of the people with motive and he didn't even necessarily have the strongest motive. They, the boys had been declared illegitimate. It's perfectly true that that was never going to end the case. You know, he did still have a good reason to get them out of the way. But the people who actually had the very strongest reason to want them dead was the incoming Tudor faction. Because they, if they, if the boys were illegitimate, then their sister Elizabeth of York had no claim to the throne, couldn't link her claim so usefully to that of Henry Tudor. If they were legitimate and alive, then most of the country would have felt that they should have been the right, you know, the rightful heirs. So Richard wasn't necessarily the one with the strongest motive or the only one with opportunity. I mean, I don't think any of us actually envisage any of the leading players uh, creeping around the corridor, you know, creeping around the tower <laughs> with a wet pillow or whatever themselves. Presumably someone would have, you know, been commissioned to do the dreadful deed. Will no one rid me of these princes in the tower? Well, you see, that's that that's a, that's another very good point because I think there is a fair chance that that is sort of how it happened. It, you know, that that, that someone like Richard wouldn't necessarily have um, actually sort of said go kill my nephews. But conversations about how he could never feel quite safe, you know, how difficult it was. Mm -hmm. And then, so you know, the rewards afterwards to one particular man, so, you know, to, to Tyrrell, that afterwards someone saying, next time a good job came up, yes, you know, Your Majesty, yes, quite. Um, this man, jolly good sort, Sort of do absolutely anything for his sovereign. Maybe he should get this, you know, perk office or whatever. I think part of the art of being a medieval or an early modern monarch was in knowing what not to know. Plausible deniability, I think, is the uh, the modern phrase for it, or at least the phrase they used in Independence Day. But plausible mm -hmm. deniability, like so many of the dark arts of spin and image, absolutely had their roots, you know, centuries ago. I mean, for the arts of fake news, spin, propaganda, forget any of the moderns, commend me to a Tudor statesman any day. <laughs>
What was your reaction as a, both as, as a Brit, if that's the right term to use, and as a historian when the bones of Richard III were found in the car park? Mm. Gosh, well, partly it's just sort of sheer, I, I won't say incredulity, because obviously, you know, we we had every reason to believe it, and we did believe it. But how extraordinary that it should happen that way. Um, no, I was rather glad, to, you know, to see Richard, even though I'm not a Ricardian as such. I'm glad to see him getting, you know, something in more in terms of a fit and proper burial. And um, Alison Weir and I were once there at at the, the, the cathedral, where, uh, you know, well, mm-hmm. the church where Richard is now interred. And uh, the actual oh, whoever was meant to be on duty, you know, preventing people climbing all over it and taking selfies and things, had to slip away. And she left Alison and I in charge, knowing that we'd, we'd <laughs> written about him. So there we were, defending Richard's grave, if you like. <laughs> Anyone who might wish to scramble on it or drop lollipops or something. Which met, which monarch, since we're kind of on this topic a little bit, I've got several questions for you, which I hope you find fun. Which British monarch suffered the most unjust and gruesome death? Oh, well, that, I guess, depends on what, what you really believe happened. Oh, to Edward II. Um, I I hesitated because I don't quite know how to describe this on your doubtless very respectable podcast Uh, but I think we know what uh, anyone who knows what what is said to have happened to him I think would agree that's about as bad as it gets Yeah, in Tudors in Love I write about some other royals I mean who, oh one of the queens of France was meant to, her lover was executed and his dead body suspended above her bed. You know, the the medieval royals all over (laughs) Europe do seem to have had a pretty nasty imagination, basically. Which monarch do you believe is overdue for a reappraisal by historians? Yeah, Henry VII. That uh, very often we're asked, a number of us, you know, to nominate our greatest British men, and most of us certainly, you know, it, it, it kind of depends on which one of us gets to, to Elizabeth I first. first. You know, I think <laughs> BBC History magazine here asked us all this last year, and unfortunately Tracy got Elizabeth I before I did. But I, so- read that, I read that article. Okay. I, I subscribe to that magazine. I'm a huge Henry the okay. First fan. I think Henry the First is the most uh, no. I'm underrated. sure you're right, but I, I don't know enough about him. Mm-hmm. But Henry the Seventh is very remarkable because most it, 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 it's odd. Our the image for most of us is wholly dependent on that rather glum portrait of him in middle or later years, the reputation as a miser. But if you actually think what Henry, of Henry's earlier life, you know, the flight abroad, um, 
a lot of enterprise while he was living in Brittany and France as, you know, as really a, a boy or a very young man escaping his captors. Then coming back across the sea to claim his kingdom against vastly superior odds, that's real romance stuff. And yet why has Henry VII gone down as practically the least romantic monarch in British history? So I think that I think he's he's really due for for a boost. Someone asked me one time, well, I never read fiction and it's a failing of mine. And they said, well, what do you want to read about like romance and adventure? And I always chuckle and say, pick up a book on the tutors. They've they've got it. <laughs> exactly. They've got it all. Um, exactly. And what I love about that is that, of course, as I try to show in Tudors in Love, the Tudors were themselves reading, consuming historical fiction. They were obsessed with this, all these centuries old stories, you know, mm -hmm. Arthur and Guinevere and Lancelot and so on, all these old tales of courtly love and, you know, and, and knights assailing, you know, knights representing chivalric virtues, as you know, assailing a castle defended by ladies, all this stuff <laughs> that they reproduced endlessly, a huge cost. I mean, you know, the set of Braveheart, nothing to it. Just, you know, again, commend me to the the efforts made for one of Henry VIII's masks, but to recreate <laughs> historical fiction just in the way we do today. Would you have voted to execute Charles I? Oh, Gosh, probably not execute. No, I don't. I don't think I'd probably vote to execute anybody. Um, do I think he was a good king? No, no. Would you? You may have already answered this question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Okay. Would you have voted to execute Mary, Queen of Scots? Oh well, you see, it's actually it's interesting. Having just said, I wouldn't vote to execute anybody. You just you just got a delightful <laughs> smile on your face, like like there's an axe being sharpened somewhere in the Gristwood well, home. <laughs> um, only if Rex starts barking again, um, <laughs> or if my husband walks in any. That's it, it. That's very interesting because despite what I just said. I do believe that Mary Queen of Scot that Elizabeth the first Elizabeth Tudor had actually no choice but to execute Mary. I don't think there was any other viable option for her to preserve the safety of her throne. Mary in prison would go on scheming, Mary released would go on scheming far worse, you know, with with a uh, a Spanish or a French, probably a French army to replace Elizabeth on the English throne. Could, could Elizabeth, when Mary first crossed the border, have helped Mary regain her throne? Perhaps. But by that point, I don't see what else Elizabeth could have done. But so yes, maybe, maybe I would. Maybe I would have voted to. Yes. Correct my memory, but wasn't Mary Queen of Scots convicted of and executed executed for treason? Which is unreasonable considering that she was not an English subject. <laughs> yeah, no, no, there's there's no way to make it look pretty 
the only question is whether it was or was not essential. With uh, with our friend, your friend, and my former podcast guest, she was a terrific interview, Nicola Tallis in mind. Mm-hmm. Would you have voted to execute Lady Jane Grey? No, that I wouldn't. I don't think the cases were, were parallel. Um, and indeed, Mary, you know, the Queen of England who ordered Jane Grey's execution, didn't want to have to do it. Um, Jane Grey did not pose a comparable threat, I don't think. Again, of course, you do, and this is something I wrote about a lot in Game of Queens, you do have to place these executions of of the 16th century in the context of the religious divides. I mean, what made Mary, Queen of Scots, so threatening to Elizabeth was that to Catholics, Elizabeth was no true queen. Mary was the rightful inheritor. And I suppose there's a case for saying that because Mary, uh, Mary Tudor, was Catholic and so many of her subjects now, you know, moving to the Protestant faith, um, Jane Jane Grey would have been a figurehead for them. But Jane Grey's claim to the throne was really so slight that no, one, one does wonder whether that one really had to happen. I was going to ask you, do you believe that Lady Jane Grey belongs on the role of British monarchs? <laughs> this is one about which Nicola and I don't altogether agree. I find it very hard to see her as a British monarch because she didn't really have a chance to act as such. Um, it, it all depends exactly what you think makes a monarch. You know, is it the is it the proclamation? Is it the coronation? Is it one of my favorite quotes? Uh... And this is the early 20th century is when uh, Edward, Prince of Wales, who becomes Edward the Seventh, he's he's out boating when Queen Victoria dies and the, mm. the captain of the boat lowers the flag to half mast. And Edward the Seventh asks the captain inquires, why is the flag at half mast? And the captain replies, the Queen of England is dead, sir. And. Edward replies, the king of England lives. Mm. And the flag well, went back to the top of the pole. Wow. Good. I've never heard that story. But it's true that just a few months ago, I was actually standing outside Buckingham Palace, um, you know, in, in with a camera crew, uh, when the flag went down when it was to half-mast, when it was officially announced that Elizabeth II had died. And there was a kind of, there was a shock, that very brief official announcement that, you know, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth died peacefully at Balmoral. The king and queen consort will remain at Balmoral. There was, oh, yeah, yes, of course. The moment Queen Elizabeth died, Charles was king, but... But it was a shock to see so quickly the king and queen consort. If you could solve any other British historic mystery, not just the princes in the tower, which one would you choose? 
it's not officially a mystery, but yet there has to be an element of mystery about it, or why is it kept us all so fascinated so many years? It's what was it about Anne Boleyn? Mm. What was it that so captured Henry to raise her so high and then cast her down so brutally? Just plain, what did Anne Boleyn have? And can I have some, please? <laughs> I think that's part of the fascination that's, you know, kept us all so gripped by Anne for centuries. And uh, Dr. Tracy Borman has a new book out about... Um, Anne and Elizabeth. She does indeed. That's right. I'm, I'm trying to get her to come back on the podcast because I'd love mm. to talk about that book. She was a, she was a wonderful, wonderful mm. guest. I bet. If you could go back in time and box the ears of any English or British monarch, whom would you choose? Oh. oh, well, so many of them were a complete waste of space. Um, but would you dare? I think probably George the Fourth, the Prince Regent. Yeah, spent all that money on his inauguration or his coronation. <laughs> well, and I once wrote a book about you know a. a, a a very fascinating woman who was his first mistress. And yeah, I'd go for the Prince Regent. Was he the one who didn't even invite his own wife or was that William the fourth, which one didn't invite no, his own wife to the, him, you know, the Prince Regent. Not only didn't invite, he shut, he had her shut out and she was hammering away on the door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hanoverians. Yes, quite. Do you have a choice for the most impactful English or British dynasty? I like think these I think, these folks really change things. I think I'm going to have to go with the Tudors. It is entirely possible that I'm missing some big medieval tricks here, but I don't know enough to be sure. Because after all, it's not long after the Tudors. You know, it's as as the Stuarts. At the end of the, mm -hmm. it's only in you know the end of the Stuarts that the monarch ceased to be to have mm -hmm. real so much real power. It went in slow stages, you know, right through to mm -hmm. Victorian days. But that's why whenever people ask, you know, who do I think is Britain's greatest monarch, and they say, well, how about Elizabeth II? No, to me, she she did a wonderful job in for, you know with the duties which were cast upon her. But I don't think you can compare uh, a, a monarch or a dynasty that actually ruled the country to one that acts as a figurehead. So, yes, for me, it's the Tudors. We and, have a few more. Go ahead. Go ahead. They, and, of course, they and the ideas they believed in, like courtly love, are still influencing our thinking today. We have a few more minutes with Sarah Gristwood. She's an English journal, journalist and author and historian. Uh, you may find her on Twitter at Sarah Gristwood, G-R-I-S-T-W-O-O-D. She has a beautiful picture of Rex, who looks like a labradoodle. <laughs> uh Technically, he's a spinoodle, but I feel if you imagine a, a woolly mammoth with the <laughs> jaws of a great white shark, you won't go far wrong. <laughs> Which figure in English or and or British history represents the most consequential premature death? Oh, 
Well, goodness. Tracy Borman got this question and immediately started talking about writing a book. And I said, just put me in small print as a co-author somewhere, because I think this is a (laughs) fascinating topic. No, I think it is. And sticking with the Tudors, I'm probably going to go with that short-lived first son of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. The one who lived only, you know, who was born quite early in their marriage, but lived only a few weeks. Mm -hmm. Because if that boy had lived, then Henry would never have cast off Catherine of Aragon, would probably never have cut England off from the Church of Rome. We wouldn't have had Elizabeth I. Um, we wouldn't have had the Stuarts probably because, you know, maybe Henry's young mm-hmm. son would have had sons. We might still have a Tudor on the throne. Yeah, I'm going to go with that little child. Who do you think is the most overrated person in English history? And before you mm-hmm. answer, I will just say that Susanna Lipscomb, another terrific, very generous podcast guest answered this question by saying queen elizabeth the first yes no i I, i'm not going to be up in arms i personally don't believe it I, i i do i mean i do believe that she was possibly england's greatest monarch um with the possible exception of some medieval rulers who i don't know enough about okay mm. no i quite take your point about about some of those um about and about henry um there is there is a, a revisionist elizabeth's reputation has gone up and down and there is a revisionist case for saying that a lot of what we credit to elizabeth i was in fact done by her ministers men Mm -hmm. like the Cecils. Yes, but Elizabeth did have the wits to recruit the Cecils and to weld this very disparate group of men into one kind of fighting unit, one working unit. Um, And I think, so I think there is a case for saying that Elizabeth has at times too much emphasis has been put on her as a kind of extraordinary, exceptional woman. Um, who do I think has been most overrated? Well, I'm inclined to say Mary, Queen of Scots. Um, but again, there is a revisionist case, and it's perfectly true, you know, for saying that she she was dealt an absolutely impossible oh, hand in Scotland. Just a tragic uh, figure. I mean, obviously yes. made her own series of mistakes terrible choices in in her romances and marriages but you when you you know you read about her and you're just like i'm glad i never yep. took her to the casino because we'd have lost everything she just seemed to be a black cat <laughs> yeah i know she did didn't she um i must say what the one, one for whom i have quite staggeringly little time is elizabeth's last favorite the earl of essex robert Devereux. Um, he, a, a, a man who clearly had a very high opinion of himself, but one that was not, I feel, justified by his real abilities. Who do you think is the most underrated person in British history? Maitland of Lethington. 
Mary, not William Maitland, that is not not the poet. Um, Mary, Queen of Scots minister. I find him, he's, he's kind of Scotland's answer to Cecil, to Lord Burley. I find him a fascinating character. He was the man behind the scenes, the clever politician, yet most of us now don't know his name. We have reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Sarah Gristwood, are you ready? Okay. You know, you've got a perfect score so far on all these other questions, (laughs) so let's keep it going. (laughs) What was your first job? I hate to say it, probably as a journalist. I started even as a student working professionally as a journalist. Writing seven... Oh, heaven knows what. True life story. (laughs) Anyway. What was your first concert? Oh. Now, I suspect you mean not classical music. The truth is I've been to fairly few concerts in my life. And I'd have been, I'm ashamed to tell you how old I would have been when I actually went to one. Do you remember who you saw? Um, I mean, all I can think of is being backstage with when with Bruce Willis's band playing in Berlin. But there you are. You're not going to get an older answer than that. <laughs> it was at the Berlin Festival. He had this band. Yeah, anyhow. <laughs> they, were, they were good. They were good. Number three, if you could recommend any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? Any topic, not just British history, anything. Oh, oh, oh gosh, I should have had, I feel I needed some time to think about that one. There's so many wonderful books out there. And because we're so thinking about history, I can almost... Only it's like that. What book would you take to the desert island? And I'd probably take the complete works of Shakespeare, which is cheating because I get more <laughs> a lot of bang for my buck, so to speak. <laughs> but there you are. Sorry. If you could wits any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? Okay, well, I don't like gore, so no executions, no battles. I wouldn't know what was happening anyway in the battles. I think probably Elizabeth the first speech at Tilbury before the Armada. Before the Armada? Yep. Number five, if you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record to talk about anything you want, whom would you choose? Oh, wow. Probably. Now, that is a hard one. Rex? <laughs> no, thanks. I get to talk with Rex plenty. <laughs> um, maybe one of the Kennedys. Maybe Michelle Obama. Uh, it, Barack Obama is the most popular answer. Yeah, I think I might. I might have said Michelle just, just because I'm, you know, oriented to what, well, mind you, we've heard quite a lot of, her story already from in her own words. Yeah, I can see why Barack Obama would be. It has to be someone living, you see, doesn't it? Otherwise, I can think of a, yes, ma'am. a fair number. Okay. 
I meant to ask you, and I know we just finished the five questions and I want to leave you be, you've given us a lot of your time, but I had a big giant note here that said, ask about Churchill. And I forgot because we were watching other things. You wrote a book yeah. and it's called Churchill an extraordinary life. Uh, what made you write about Winston Churchill yeah. and, and how do you oh. assess him now that he's, he's really, I hate to say he's a polarizing figure, but it's interesting yeah. that he has become a figure of of intense discussion. Yes, he has. Uh, and indeed, I'm sure that, that, that I'm sure you would find some people, not me, having given his name e for, you know, for the, either for the most overrated or the most consequential, whatever figure in history. And if you hadn't said uh, that it has to be a live person who you, you'd most like to have dinner with, I'd have made it Churchill. Apart from anything else, I'm quite sure he'd have seen to it that the dinner was wonderful and the champagne was <laughs> fabulous. Um, no, I am very interested in him indeed. Of course, his home, Chartwell, was here in Kent. Again, because I'm so interested in women's history, I became interested. I think I first... I first Obviously, he's just this sort of large, iconic figure in all our, you know, all our imaginations. But I first became interested in him when I was looking into the suffragette story, you know, the, the mm -hmm. argument for, for, for women to have the vote in England. And Churchill goes down as an opponent of that. And the suffragettes did, in fact, target him very actively. And yet, at the end of his life... Churchill College in Cambridge um, was the first, I think, Oxbridge College to admit women on equal terms. And Churchill was asked, you know, did he think that was right? And he said, yes, absolutely. The war had taught him that, mm. you know, that what women did in the Second World War. Um, that if ever he effectively he was saying that if ever he hadn't fully appreciated women's abilities, he did now. And I feel the ability to go on learning all through your life is a very important one and that he displayed it more than most. Politically, of course, he was the great survivor. I mean, way back in his career, you know, in the 20s, it looked as if He'd had a career, like so many politicians, his career was over. Guess what? It was only just coming. Um, he, his turn of phrase, you know, that 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 he he it was he was told that he'd won Britain the World War Two, and he he said that you know no, the the, the British Lion did that. I just mm -hmm. gave it the roar. But you know his rhetoric. His speechifying, but he was a deeply complex character, and as you say, I find the very divisiveness um, fascinating because, a bit like Elizabeth I, in a way, most of us grew up being taught him as an, a figure absolutely to revere, to admire mm -hmm. wholeheartedly. Now, quite rightly, there's revision of that, but. The revision can sometimes itself go too far, I think, you, you know, over something like the, he said some appalling things over thing questions like the Bengal famine. You know, he is mm -hmm. he is accused now of causing the death of those untold, those those millions. Um, in fact, if you look at his letters, 
he he was profound. You know that those were not his attitudes. Um, his priorities were elsewhere. It's doubtless what you know with the, the, the he he was trying to get um, supplies. Perhaps not trying hard enough. You know, it's. I, I find the swings backwards and forwards about his reputation fascinating. There, there were several American publications, conservative publications, in in mm-hmm. in a few cases, who at the turn of the twentieth to twenty first century named mm-hmm. Winston Churchill the greatest figure of the twentieth century. Mm-hmm. You agree, demur? Or do you kind of go, uh, oh, I get it? Yes. No, I get it. Greatest figure in terms of size, stature, effect, yes. Uh, by greatest, I don't mean wholly good and always right. Flaw- yeah, greatest doesn't mean flawless. Exa- exactly. Yeah. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Sarah Gristwood. She's an English journalist. She is an author. And she is an amazing historian and and clearly a very generous podcast guest. Thank you so much, Sarah, for your time. I hope you had fun. I did. And thank you for having me. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.